Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So there's a bunch of stuff going on in the news that we will get back to in just a minute. But right now, Ron Gonan is on the line with us. He's the founder and CEO of Closed Loop Partners and the author of a new book, The Waste-Free World. The website, closedlooppartners.com, the Twitter handle, Loop Fund, L-O-O-P, about an economic model for a profitable and sustainable future. Hmm, Interesting. Ron, welcome to the program. Tell us about this. Hey, Tom, great to be here today. And uh, my book is focused on a transition that uh, our firm is focused on uh, implementing, which is a transition away from a linear economy to a circular economy. Uh, Post-World War II, we started to develop our products and packaging in a linear system where you would extract a natural resource. So if you're going to manufacture something in plastic, you're going to extract petroleum, metal, you're going to extract ore. You would uh, manufacture using that natural resource uh, into a product. It would be used once, and then it would be disposed of in a landfill. And that type of system was definitely in the financial best interest of the extractive industries, oil and gas, mining, timber, and in the landfill industries. Effectively, every time we bought a product, we would pay a fee for that natural resource extraction and a fee for uh, its disposal. And we recognize that uh, a circular system, one in which you use product design, uh, material science, sustainable materials to manufacture without relying on natural resources, and then advanced recycling and remanufacturing systems to be able to reuse that material would be in the financial best interest of consumers, taxpayers, uh, and municipalities. That's, that's fascinating. Would that, what percentage of products that are manufactured right now do you think could be made in a way that, that draws from this closed loop, in other words, that, that are essentially recycled products, and that are manufactured in a way that makes it easy for them to be recycled? Sure. How far away from this are we? Um, we're accelerating towards it relatively quickly because the CEOs of major consumer goods companies are recognizing that focusing on circular systems is a way for them to reach their environmental goals 
while also increasing margins and reducing risk. And so we're starting to see concepts around the circular economy being infused into supply chains of some of the world's largest retailers and consumer goods companies. The global consulting firm Accenture uh, released a report that they expect $4.5 trillion worth of value to be unlocked in this transition from uh, a linear economy to a circular economy. And so now investors are also starting to take uh, notice that there's a huge opportunity. To what extent is there opposition to this? I mean, it, when when we started talking about, for example, moving away from fossil fuels towards solar energy, uh, you know, back in the day, back when Jimmy Carter actually put solar panels on the White House and 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 declared, uh, actually passed a legislation that would have created the nation's first solar bank. Well, actually, I'm not sure if he passed legislation, but he, he proposed this in this uh, famous speech of his, uh, the first solar bank that would have uh, provided 20% of all of America's electricity from solar power by the year 2000. And of course, Reagan put the kibosh on that. But uh, what came out after he did this was this massive lobbying and PR campaign from the fossil fuel industry saying, oh, solar will never work and it's pie in the sky and he's going he's gonna to double your electric bills and you don't want that and there's nothing to worry about. Global warming is nonsense. I mean, are you encountering that same kind of opposition or is, uh, is that, has that horse left the barn? Uh, absolutely. We still encounter that type of opposition. And we expect that we'll continue to face that type of opposition. The good news is uh, there's enough interest now aligning uh, amongst uh, consumers, taxpayers, government officials, CEOs of consumer goods companies, and investors that I think we've got enough momentum now to push that opposition back. Uh, the unfortunate thing about that opposition is it's been allowed for too long to game our economy in their own financial best interest to the detriment of us, the taxpayer, and uh, the citizen. I think the disposal of products in landfill is a perfect example of that. Billions and billions of dollars are spent every year uh, of our tax dollars to dispose of items in landfills and it's not made transparent to us in our tax bill that that cost uh is our responsibility and so we're effectively right. tricked into thinking you could just keep buying more stuff and keep throwing it out the, the garbage truck just picks up the stuff every week it seems to me like it's free the more i generate has really no impact on the collection frequency and that's actually not the case it costs billions of dollars to dispose of all of these products and packaging in landfills. And, and we've been paying the cost to the, to the betterment of the extractive industries and the landfill industries. Yeah, it's, it is kind of crazy, that linear thing. Um, what about things like the forever chemicals? I mean, you know, the, the, uh, Mark Ruffalo did this movie about, about the, uh, I think they're called perfluorates, the, these compounds that are the precursors to Teflon that not mm -hmm. only live forever, but they're altering the, the, uh, uh, the gender of frogs and fish uh, as they're dumped into rivers and appear to be causing cancers and other problems in humans. 
Um, and, and now there's a whole book out about how they're crashing sperm counts. You know, <laughs> American sperm counts are down by 50% since the 1970s or 46%, which is pretty shocking. Um, you know, this could lead to the end of, of the human race. So uh, two questions around that. Number one, how do you deal with the manufacturing process? For example, let's take the example of Teflon, where in that manufacturing process, they're using these chemicals that they're then disposing of in the rivers. How do you capture those chemicals, that chemistry, number one? And number two, uh, with compounds like that that might be considered toxic, how do you recycle them? You, you fix this through uh, disclosure, transparency, and free markets. Back to my a point earlier that the system has been gained to the financial best interest of a few industries and to the detriment of us, citizen and taxpayer, if you told companies, it's a free market, you're welcome to sell whatever you want, but you need to disclose what the ingredients are and what you're selling and what the potential impacts are. Is it healthy for someone to have this in their home? Is it neutral? Now, could it harm them? And if you mandated that type of disclosure, the consumer would force the market uh, in the direction of companies that are good social actors. And we actually have a lot of data to support that. Look at the growth of companies like Seventh Generation, method cleaning products. Those are two companies that were the first to market being transparent about the chemicals that they use in their cleaning products and that those chemicals are healthy. And originally, the market thought, well, only people that care about sustainability or the green movement will buy that product. And they were absolutely wrong. Uh, the market for both seventh generation and method are far larger. It, it doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat, blue state, red state. Uh, if you're a parent, you want to know what your kid's digesting, what you're putting in, in your home. And so that's how I think you solve it is you force uh, transparency and disclosure to let the consumer decide. Are any legislators taking this seriously? Absolutely. We're seeing a lot, both the federal and state level, that I think will accelerate uh, the circular economy. We're glad to see. That's absolutely great. The book is called The Waste-Free World. The website closedlooppartners.com. Loop Fund is the Twitter handle for Ron Gonan. Ron, thanks a lot for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Taking back the taking back America. Here we are, step by step, show by show. Stick around. And there's a couple of things that I wanted to share with you, and but the House of Representatives is going to be voting, apparently, fairly soon. I mean, apparently, like in the next two or three weeks, on whether or not to admit Washington D.C. as the 51st state. And this is something, Steny Hoyer revealed this in a letter yesterday afternoon to members of the Democratic Caucus, to Democrats in Congress. And they're going to call it the Douglas Commonwealth. Uh, the other day I was drawing a blank on, I knew, I remember Douglas, but what was, what's the C? It's Commonwealth, which is great. You know, like you've got the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Now you'll have the Douglas Commonwealth. And so it still will be called D.C. or Douglas Commonwealth. And in fact, it'll be called State of Washington Douglas Commonwealth. So it'll be referred to as D.C. And this will have a significant impact if it passes on 
the ability of Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate to screw things up. The guys who represent 41 million fewer Americans than the Democrats in the Senate, which is mind boggling when you think about it, right? That's like more than 10% of Americans. It's 340 million Americans, so you know, 34 million would be 10%. This is 40, the Democrats in the Senate, even though they have 50-50 with the Republicans, represent 41 million more Americans than do the Republicans. And, and the Republicans scream about, well, the minority should have rights because they consider themselves in the minority because you've got a Democrat in the vice president's chair who can break a tie. Uh, and yet, the Democrats... Well, I guess, I guess they, they very much represent the minority, you know, 41 million fewer people. But is that, is that what you call democracy? I don't, I don't think so. So anyway, I, I wanted to give you a, a heads up on that. And uh, Tom Cotton, this uh, David Badash uh, wrote a, an amazing piece over an alternate t- titled Tom Cotton Scorched as Bloodthirsty Fascist for Stunning Claim About the Criminal Justice System. And uh, it's just mind-boggling. This is in response to a CNN report that was titled, The U.S. Saw Significant Crime Rise Across Major Cities in 2020. And Tom Cotton comes out and says uh, he's got a solution. Right? He's got a solution to crime. And I'm wondering, in your your mind, is this a solution to crime as well? He says, lock it up. Lock them up. He says, we have a major under-incarceration problem in America, and it's only getting worse. There's only one thing America is suffering from, and it's not under, oh, it, it, that, this is the uh, agenda. The reality is that we are the world's leader in our incarceration. Our incarceration rate is at its lowest in 20 years, but we have 25% of the world's prison population. Now, you, you might be able to alter that if you said that uh, the Uyghurs in China were in prison, but that, you know, that's being debated right now. But we have 2.1 million total prisoners, and in 1972, we had only 200,000. And uh, yes, our population has doubled in that period of time, but our number of prisoners has more than doubled. It hasn't gone from 200,000 to 400,000. It's gone from 200,000 to 2.1 million, which is mind-boggling. And Tom Cotton is saying, but there's not enough people in jail, you know? We got to do something about this. But we'll be back with your calls right after this. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman Program. The lines are open. We'll be right back. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. 
That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book in today's uh, Tom Hartman Book Club is On Fire, The Burning Case for Green New Deal by Naomi Klein. This is from the epilogue, the very end of the book, and it's titled The Capsule Case for Green New Deal. Critics of the Green New Deal have plenty of serious arguments for why all this is doomed. Political paralysis in Washington is real. Even in a world where climate change, denying Republicans, were swept out of power, there would still be plenty of centrist Democrats convinced that their constituents had no appetite for radical change. The plans are expensive, and getting the budgets approved will be a Herculean effort. A better course of action, we hear, would be to advance climate policies that appeal to many on the right, like a shift from coal to nuclear power, or a small tax on carbon that returns the revenues as a dividend to every citizen. The main trouble with these incremental approaches is that they simply won't get the job done. In order to win support from Republicans soaked in fossil fuel money, the price on carbon would be too low to make much of an impact. Nuclear power is expensive and slow to roll out compared with renewables, and that's not to mention the risks associated with uranium mining and waste storage. The truth is we cannot lower emissions as steeply and as rapidly as required to swerve off our perilous trajectory without a sweeping industrial and infrastructure overhaul. The good news is that the Green New Deal isn't nearly as impractical or unrealistic as its many critics claim. I've made the case for why that is throughout the book, but what follows are nine more reasons the Green New Deal has a fighting chance, a chance that will increase every time we go out and make the case. One, it will be a massive job creator. Every part of the world that has invested heavily in renewables and efficiency has found these sectors to be much more powerful job creators than fossil fuels. When New York State made a commitment to get half its energy from renewables by 2030, it immediately saw a spike in job creation. The accelerated timeline of the U.S. Green New Deal will turn it into a jobs machine. Even without federal support, indeed with active sabotage from the White House, the green economy is already creating more jobs than oil and gas. According to the 2018 U.S. Energy and Employment Review, jobs in wind, solar energy efficiency, and other clean energy sectors outnumbered fossil fuels by a rate of 3 to 1. This is happening because of a combination of state and municipal incentives and the plummeting costs of renewables. A Green New Deal would take the industry supernova while ensuring that the jobs have salaries and benefits comparable to those offered in the oil and gas sector. There's no shortage of research to support this. For instance, a 2019 study on the job impacts of a Green New Deal-style program in the state of Colorado found that many more jobs would be created than lost. The study, published by the Department of Economics and Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, looked at what it would take for the state to achieve a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030. It found that roughly 585 non-management jobs would be lost, but that with an investment of $14.5 billion a year in clean energy, quote, Colorado will generate about 100,000 jobs per year in the state. There are many more studies with similarly striking findings. 
a plan put forward by the U.S. Blue-Green Alliance, a body that brings together unions and environmentalists, estimated that a $40 billion annual investment in public transit and high-speed rail for six years would produce more than 3.5 million jobs during that period. And according to a report from the European Transport Workers Federation, comprehensive policies to reduce emissions in the transport sector by 80% would create 7 million new jobs across that continent, while another 5 million clean energy jobs in Europe would slash electricity emissions by 90%. Number two, paying for it will create a fairer economy. As the 2018 IPCC report on keeping warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius made clear, if we don't take transformative action to lower emissions, the costs will be astronomical. The panel's estimate is that the economic damages of allowing temperatures to increase by 2 degrees Celsius, as opposed to 1.5, would hit $69 trillion globally. Of course, rolling out a Green New Deal would have large costs as well, and the plan's advocates have pointed to a variety of ways this can be financed. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said that the U.S. version should be financed the way any previous emergency spending has been, by the U.S. Congress simply authorizing the funds, backstopped by the Treasury, the world's currency of last resort. According to New Consensus, the think tank closely associated with their policy proposals, because, quote, the Green New Deal will produce new goods and services to keep pace with and absorb new expenditures, there is no more reason to let fear about financing halt progress than there was to let it halt wars or tax cuts, end quote. The European Spring proposal for a Green New Deal, meanwhile, calls for a global minimum corporate tax rate to capture the tax revenue that the Apples and Googles of the world currently dodge with transnational schemes. It also calls for a reversal of monetary orthodoxy with public investment floating green bonds supported by central banks. Quote, to address the true existential threat that we face today, we must reverse the economic policies that brought us to this brink. Austerity means extinction, end quote. Some analysts, like Christian Parenti, have emphasized that federal governments can drive the transition with their purchasing policies. In short, there are all kinds of ways to raise financing, including ways that attack untenable levels of wealth concentration and shift the burden to those most responsible for climate pollution. And it's not hard to figure out who that is. We know, thanks to research from the Climate Accountability Institute, that a whopping 71% of greenhouse gas emissions since 1988 can be traced to just 100 corporations. On Fire by Naomi Klein. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman program. Don in Paragold, Arkansas. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today? Hey, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I live here in Arkansas, and I have to say I'm concerned about the amount of appearances that Tom Cotton makes on Fox News. I mean, He's your senator, only right? There's only 3 million people in this entire state. Only 700,000 people voted for Tom Cotton to be senator. And he gets on Fox News and discusses it like he represents... 75% of the American people. And he really hmm. doesn't. Arkansas, Eric Rick Crawford, the congressman from the 1st Congressional District, ran unopposed. Tom, I mean, this place conceded the Donald Trump before they even had the election. Way before. Wow. Way, way wow. before. We still have people in this town that are flying Trump 2020 flags. It I is, believe it. <laughs> you know, and so... So, Don, Trump, what do you see as a remedy to this? Stop the money for these talking heads going in. I mean, just don't yeah. pay them and see how much Tom Cotton would actually go on Fox News. I have to say yeah. Asa Hutchinson was on Tucker Carlson. 
And if you haven't seen the interview with Tucker Carlson with Asa Hutchinson, that's something that you need to talk about. Because Asa Hutchinson tells, Tom, tells Tucker Carlson, well, if you'll just shut up and let me answer the question. Really? You know, this, this false outrage that Fox News is. And then here's another point. If Fox is so worried about what's happening at the border, why doesn't Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and Laura Ingram set up, you know, the Fox News International Receiving Station? Where if you come in and you volunteer to vote Republican, we'll give you a bigger bowl of rice. I mean, this is a humanitarian crisis. It's not just, and they keep, you know, I live in Arkansas. I live a long way from Texas. It doesn't affect me. But at the top of the hour, every hour, Fox News is running. I mean, when on DirecTV, I can watch on Channel 200. We can watch MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, and BBC World at the same time. And when you see hmm. the disparity of what Fox News is pumping out hour after hour, especially during the Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram three-hour block, it's just 42 million people are watching this. It's just So DirecTV lets you pull up four channels on your TV screen at the same time and what, just choose the audio, which one you want to hear? I didn't Absolutely. know about this. That's it's amazing. on channel 271 on DirecTV. You can watch... Uh, yeah, I don't have DirecTV, but I do use uh, Sling, which is a DirecTV product, but I don't think they offer that. But that's fascinating. And huh. that, just, the, just the difference in the information that Sean Hannity and, and say, Rachel Maddow are putting out at the same time yeah. zone. Two yeah. different audiences, you know? Yeah, no, it, I get that. Maddow, a shout out. I loved Blowout, and I can't wait to see what she's got to say about Trump and her next book that she comes out with about him. Yeah, I'm, and I'd like I'm to with you. She's... Too. <laughs> anyway, Tom, I'll get off here. I'm just embarrassed. Tom Cotton doesn't represent but less than 1% of the population of the United States, and he just crazy. It's just crazy. Yeah, and only 700,000 out of, what, 3 or 4 million people in Arkansas. Don, thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks for your, your comments and, and your thoughts. It's nice to hear from you. Ron in Chicago. Hey, Ron, what's up? Yes, uh, there's been a lot of coverage about the uh, murder of George Floyd, but there was another story that happened a couple months ago. There was a uh, hospital in Minnesota that, that issued a restraining order against a former employee, and uh, the man went to get a gun permit from the police, and even though the permit was already, the uh, restraining order was already issued, he was able to get a handgun and go back to the hospital and murder five people. I don't know if you've heard of that story. That was that mass shooting from last week that you're talking about? No, I think it was back in, maybe, uh, I, I thought it was back in January. I thought it was before that. Okay, but it was this year. Yeah. I didn't, I, you know, I don't, I don't specifically yeah. track, yeah, yeah. I mean, there have been so many mass shootings, it's hard to keep track of them. So what's, yeah. what's your point? Uh, are the police responsible for that? They knew that there was oh, that's a interesting. Yeah, you know make, I, I, yeah, I doubt they could be sued because of uh, uh, qualified immunity and sovereign immunity, but you never know. You never know. And, and it's just a, another example of just the, the general insanity of our society, Ron, that, that, that we've got more guns than people in the United States. And yeah. we're the only developed country in the world now that has regular mass murders. Yeah. Um, and, which, uh, there was an item that said that uh, since 2014 there has been... Uh, almost 3,000 mass shootings. So that's an incredible number. 
It really is. I mean, and, and it all depends on how you define mass shootings. You know, what your threshold is. Typically, well, it's four people. Well, it says four, at least four people shot at the crime yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you, Ron. It's. I mean, this is just this is a crisis. Tess in Denver. Hey, Tess. Thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's up? Hey, Colin. I was just calling to um, talk about how in uh, in Colorado we are trying to pass a bail reform bill and. Interestingly, Boulder, Colorado, has come out as like staunch kind of uh, opponents. The the chief of police in Boulder has been kind of spreading propaganda about what the bill would and would not allow, and what, you know who how dangerous the streets would become, and all of this. And it's interesting because the sheriff was a part of the decision making around the construction of the bill. And so was the attorney general and the district attorney for Boulder. So it's been interesting to see. And it's also been interesting to see the community because, you know, there was just the Boulder shooting. Um, mm-hmm. And so now there is like I, I testified on city council in Boulder last night because we have a friend who is a victim of, you know, cash bail, pretrial, you know, kind of oppression. So I testified, and, and the response was very much like, you know, this anti-criticism of police at all, right? Because there was a police mm-hmm. officer who died, and, and, I, and I understand that, but it felt very much like an exploitation of the grief, right, for conservative, you know, agendas. Because in Colorado, we have more people incarcerated in Colorado than any Western industrialized nation in the world, right now. Yeah, well, and that's true of the United States more generally. Tess, cash bail, if if you dig into it, what you find is that the idea of cash bail, and this kind of goes back to scientific racism and all this, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, nonsense that has been spouted for hundreds of years in in this country and overseas as well, throughout Europe, that there are some people who, because of their genetics or, uh, you know, accident of birth or whatever, there are some people who are just broken. They're so evil. They're so terrible, uh, whatever, that even if they aren't caught for a big crime, at least they've been caught. And that this kind of criminality is associated with poverty. And uh, because the, the criminal mind is also uh, you know, is so dysfunctional at being uh, capable of functioning in society that therefore they essentially choose to live in poverty. And so the way to keep as many of these people, in quotes, these people off the streets as possible is to put on cash bail because cash bail principally hits low income people. It, it hurts them the worst. So do you, do you believe in cash bail? No, I don't. And what I'm saying is that the origin of the whole cash bail idea was this insane, racist idea that poor people are poor because they've got poor genetics and there's nothing you can do about it except, you know, oppress them, keep them down. And, you know, it doesn't even recognize the idea that society may have something to do with poverty or that racism may have something to do with poverty or that culture may have something to do with poverty. Instead, it's all, you know, it's like all the responsibility for criminality is centered in the individual alleged criminal and therefore Mm -hmm. cash bail. And, and, you know, the proponents of cash bail will say, well, we've got to figure out a way to protect society from people who we think committed a crime but have not yet been adjudicated. And, you know, and the answer to that, of course, is, 
Well, the way you do that is you don't have cash bail. And if somebody is you know, so bad that they're probably going to reoffend while they're w- awaiting trial, you don't let them out. But then the proponents right. of cash bail come back and say, but wait a minute, how do you know? You know, are, you're going to have to set the threshold. If you want to be really cautious, you're going to have to set the threshold really low and you may end up keeping more people in jail. And then the rebuttal to that is no, you have rational guidelines and you, and you may have some independent body that oversees this. And, and it's like this debate has not happened in America. It's just starting. And yes, like yes. as you've identified and 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 as part of that debate, we need to also discuss the, the bizarre and racist origins of this whole idea of cash bail and, and right. the whole idea that poor people should be held to a different standard than rich people, because if rich people are, con- are arrested for shoplifting or something, you know, they bail themselves out in 10 minutes. Poor person. No, they're and, in jail and for and weeks. It's, it's, tied to, it's tied to housing as well. You know, the criminalization of poverty yep. and, and these homeless weeks that are going on across the city to the country as well. It's all tied in, you know, with this criminalization that some people deserve homes and others don't. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that then gets back to this kind of bizarre pseudo eugenics, pseudo, you know, and Donald Trump saying, I got great genes. That's why I'm wearing, you know, it's just nuts. Tess, thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Nancy in Chihuahua, Washington. Hey, Nancy, what's on your mind today? Hey, um, I was talking uh, about what one man mentioned about schools. And Mm -hmm. I think there should be, instead of just property taxes, paying for the schools, it should be a a minimum standard that there's a fund either through the state or the Fed and then part of an infrastructure bill where the maintenance, the books, and the class sizes should all be a uniform, you know, standard so that, you know, poor schools can do better as good as rich schools. The rich schools could have their ballet and their oil painting. But, you know, when I was a kid, I went from a fairly good school to uh, when we lived in an immigrant area. I was two grades behind. Um, the school was falling apart. We had to share books. When I got to junior high, the classes were so big, kids were sitting on radiators and windowsills because it wasn't enough room for desks. Hmm. And the lab equipment didn't work, and so we just had to watch the teacher do it. And then when I finally did go into a good school, I was so lost that I wound up giving up, and I just left school. You know, and, uh, Holly, you're the should... perfect segue f- from the uh, – f- uh, I'm sorry, finish your thought. I thought you'd finish no, I was just saying I had relatives on Long Island, and uh, they would say, oh, why should we pay for other kids' schools? Right. You know? Well, you are the perfect segue from the last caller who was talking about cash bail. And I was pointing out that the origins of cash bail are entirely racist and this belief that there are good people and bad people and it's passed down through gene lines, you know, and and this has not just been used against people of color. This ideology was used against Irish immigrants in the United States from the 1840s until the 1870s and against Italian immigrants in the United States from the 1870s to to the 1900s, early 1900s. And then, you know, it was embraced by President the Democrats. Democratic President Woodrow Wilson in his eugenics campaigns. And the same is true of local property taxes. Local property taxes uh, supporting schools 
were, were put into place as a way of making sure that wealthy communities, which were filled with good people, had good education for their young people. So they would have opportunities, whereas poor neighborhoods that were filled with bad people, with undesirable people, with people what Donald Trump would call bad genes, that those poor neighborhoods, that they're, they're you know, why, why invest in them? They're, you know, they give up on them. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're no good. They're, they're bad people. So to hell with them. And all it has done throughout history, since the 1890s, when public education actually started in the United States, in the, in the 1892 in Boston, ever since then, We've had this system, and it has guaranteed a segregation between the haves and the have-nots in our school system. And you just identified it, Nancy. And again, it's got this racist, bizarre eugenics origin. Yeah. Give you the last word on that. Okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Nancy. You know, I guess my rant was enough. But again, when you start digging into this, it's like, you know, my next book is going to be The Hidden History of American Healthcare. And it's, it's available for pre-order right now in all your online bookstores. And... I started digging into why don't we have a national health care system when it was first proposed by Teddy Roosevelt in 1902. The reason we don't is because white southern racists did not want black people to have health care. It's just that simple. I, you know, I devote a, a, about a quarter of the book to it. I, I, when I got into the history of it, it was like, oh my God. I mean, it shouldn't have surprised me, but it shocked me. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be. Welcome to the Tom Harmon University Book Club. Today we're reading from ADHD and the Edison Gene, a drug-free approach to managing the unique qualities of your child. This is from the introduction. I was in India in 1993 to help manage a community for orphans and blind children on behalf of a German charity. During the monsoon season, the week of the big Hyderabad earthquake, I took an all-day train ride almost all the way across the subcontinent from Bombay through Hyderabad to Rajamundri to visit an obscure town near the Bay of Bengal. In the train compartment with me were several Indian businessmen and a physician, and we had plenty of time to talk as the country flew by from sunrise to sunset. 
Curious about how they viewed our children diagnosed as having attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. I asked, are you familiar with those types of people who seem to crave stimulation yet have a hard time staying with any one focus for a period of time? They may hop from career to career and sometimes even from relationship to relationship, never seeming to settle into one job or into a life with one person, but the whole time they remain creative, incredibly creative and inventive. Ah, we know this type well, one of the men said, the other three nodding in agreement. Well, what do you call this personality type, I, call, I asked them. Very holy, he said. These are old souls near the end of their karmic cycle. Again, the other three nodded agreement, perhaps a big more, bit more vigorously in response to my startled look. Old souls, I questioned, thinking that a very odd description for some those who uh, American psychiatrists have diagnosed as having a particular disorder. Oh, yes, the physician said. In our religion, we believe that the purpose of reincarnation is to eventually free oneself from worldly entanglement and desire. In each lifetime, we experience certain lessons, and finally we are free of this earth and can merge into the oneness of God. When a soul is very close to the end of those thousands of incarnations, he must take a few lifetimes to do many, many things, to clean up all the little threads left over from his previous lifetimes. Another businessman added, this is a man very close to being enlightened. We have great respect for such individuals, although their lives may be difficult. Another businessman raised a finger and interjected, but it is through the difficulties of such lives the souls are purified. The others nodded agreement. I said, in America, they consider this behavior indicative of a psychiatric disorder. All three looked startled and then laughed. In America, you consider our most holy men, our yogis and swamis, to be crazy people as well, said the physician, with a touch of sadness in his voice. So it is with different cultures. We live in different worlds. We in the Western world have such holy and nearly enlightened people among us, and we say they must be mad. But as we're about to see, they may instead be our most creative individual, our most extraordinary thinkers, our most brilliant inventors and pioneers. The children among us, whom our teachers and psychiatrists say are disordered, they may in fact carry a set of abilities, a skill set, that was necessary for the survival of humankind in the past. It has created much of what we presently treasure as our quality of life, and that will be critical to the survival of the human race in the future. There is immense power in how we choose to view what's happening around us. And this is terrifically important when we consider how we can best know our children and provide them with the upbringing they need, an upbringing that will lead them to be healthy, happy, functioning adults. The premise of this book is that children who have what we have come to know as ADHD are important and vital gifts to our society and culture, and in the largest sense can be an extraordinary gift to the world. In addition, for those adults who have been similarly diagnosed or defined, this book offers a new way of understanding themselves and their relationship to the world, a way that brings insight, empowerment, and success. The long history of the human race, as we'll see in this book, has conferred on us, some more than others, a set of predilections, temperaments, and abilities carried through the medium of our genetic makeup. These skills are ideally suited to life in the ever-changing world of our ancient ancestors, and we have now discovered are also ideally suited to the quickly changing modern world of cyberspace and widespread ecological and political crises that require rapid response. I will call this genetic gift the Edison gene, after Thomas Edison, who brought us electric lights and phonographs and movies and literally 10,000 other inventions. 
He is the model for the sort of impact a well-nurtured child carrying this gene can have on the world. While I'm principally referring to the DRD4 gene, see Chapter 5, the science of genetics is embryonic, with new discoveries being made every day. No doubt, sometime soon, we'll have a better, more complete list of the specific genes that make up what Dave DeBroncart first called the Edison trait back in 1992, and Lucy Jo Palladino expanded on considerably in 1997 in her wonderful book, The Edison Trait. For the moment, though, I'll use the useful shorthand of the Edison gene. When Thomas Edison's school teacher threw him out of school in the third grade for being fidgety, slow, and inattentive, his mother, Nancy Edison, the well-educated daughter of a Presbyterian minister, was deeply offended by the schoolmaster's characterization of her son. As a result, she pulled him out of school, and she became his teacher from then until the day he went off to work on his own for the railroads. And thus continues the story of people with ADHD and great success and how you can help your child be like that. Tom, uh, watching us on YouTube in Jerusalem, Israel. Hey, Tom, how's Jerusalem and what's up? Uh, well, kind of interesting today. Uh, I have a friend who lives in a neighborhood that's about to be ethnically cleansed named Sheikh Jarrah. And I go to a protest every Friday. You say that democracy is not a spectator sport. Well, I put my money where my mouth is. And today uh, the police showed ethnically up. Ethnically cleansed? And basically, yes, basically they are going to be evicted. And then settlers are going to take over the entire neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. And long story short, I saw a minister so this is, of Knesset. This is an Arab neighborhood. Jewish. Forgive my inter yeah. interrupting, but I just want to be clear about what we're talking about here. Okay. Uh, sure, continue, I'm sorry. Tom, I'm I sorry. apologize. I'm just trying to get it into a nutshell for you. Yeah. I saw a minister of Knesset who basically got the CRAP beat out of him by the border police. And um, I just thought I would call and ask, why don't people in America you know, know more about what's going on here. I'm just calling because I live here. I have a friend who's probably going to lose his home. And, um, you know, I came here because I didn't want to fight in a war in Iraq. Um, Tammy Duckworth's office couldn't care less. They hung up on me. Um, Laura Underwood, was very, they were very polite and listened to me on another time where I described what was happening in the neighborhood. But we have basically a you know functioning sociopath running this country and he has a bunch of money from america what 3.8 plus billion dollars and um i don't know you know do americans know what's being done with their money because obviously these you know border police were kitted out with u.s you know, probably surplus weapons you know, the, the, well, in the, answer to your question, you know, Tom, I'm assuming taking it at face value is not being a rhetorical question. <laughs> There's an equal amount of money yeah. every year going to Egypt because this came out of the out of Jimmy Carter's Camp okay. David agreement, where basically we said, OK, yeah. we're going to give each of you a couple billion dollars every year and, yeah. and please shake hands and be nice to each other. And we don't hear about yeah. what's going on in Egypt either. And in Egypt, they had a military coup. No. Egypt, you know, uh, Israel has become essentially an apartheid state. Egypt has become a military dictatorship. Yeah. 
And there's no yeah. discussion of that. There was this whole hoopla last week about the reinternment of a couple of uh, pharaohs, and and uh, you know none of that yeah. is ever mentioned. I think the media just doesn't like mm-hmm. ta- covering politics unless it's American politics. You know, we we we're not talking about what Bolsonaro is doing down in Brazil anymore, uh, except in the context yeah. of COVID. We're not covering. Uh, you know, we just basically don't cover international politics. So I, I don't think it's some sort mm-hmm. of conspiracy among the media to not report. No. On the horrible things that happen in other countries, including Israel. I think it's just more no. this kind of navel gazing that Americans have always done. We're separated from most other countries by two oceans. I guess so. And, you know, so we tend to be very introspective rather than extrospective, yeah. if that's a word. Well, so, anyhow, Tom, I got to move along, but thank channel. you for the report. Yeah, you thanks for well. the report from Jerusalem. Thank you. I'll call again. Bye. Okay, great hearing from you. Ron in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hey, Ron, what's up? Yeah, I was wondering, how much uh, do you believe what the Republicans are saying about the border, about how bad it is down there? Well, I guess it's it's a matter of definitions, but apparently there have been a little over 100,000 people who have crossed the border in the last, uh, uh, what, two months, three months since, since Biden became president. And, you know, it's a not insubstantial number of people. There are things that we could be doing inside the United States to prevent people who are coming in simply seeking better economic advantage. But the problem, the big problem that we have right now, Ron, is that because of the way the Reagan administration and and frankly, subsequent Republican administrations, Bush, Bush and Trump, have been messing with or hindering or refusing to work with Central American governments, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador in particular. And we even sent, you know, you'll recall, right-wing death squads into El Salvador, and we tried for the better part of a decade to take down the government of, of Guatemala. The result of that is massive political instability in that region. And now on top of that, climate change is wiping out small family farms. You've got literally hundreds of thousands of acres every year in Central America that were productive farmland that are becoming high desert scrub as a consequence of climate change. So we've got political and climate refugees on our southern border. One of the things that we could be doing is we could be working with those countries to try to to strengthen their internal political systems and strengthen their food supplies, you know, help them with agriculture and things like that. We could be working with Mexico. Mexico has actually taken the brunt of this, by the way. Asylum applications to Mexico as opposed to the United States and refugees coming into Mexico has been an absolute explosion in the last decade or, you know, 15, 10 or 15 years. And we're just seeing the, the kind of tail end of that stream trying to get into the United States. Well, I was wondering, but, on the, know, as people coming in, is there anything that the Biden administration can do right now to protect the individuals coming across with all the trafficking and the cartels doing their stuff? Because I've been down there and it is. Have you been down there? I've not been on the on the southern American border. No, I have been in California. I've been on the U.S. border, but uh, not in Texas. Yeah, I was wondering if you know. I've been there a couple times just to see for myself, and it is so awful. And plus, you cannot go from well, that you know, Ron. What you're saying as a resident of Salt Lake directly contradicts what I've had numerous Texans call into this show and people who live on the border say that, you know, this is not that big a deal, that most of these people are 
going out of their way as soon as they get across the, the, the Rio Grande or over the fence or whatever it may be, going out of their way to surrender themselves to Border Patrol because then they can ask for asylum. These are asylum seekers. These are refugees. And they are not trying to sneak beyond that point. They're not trying to get into El Paso or whatever. They're trying to get arrested so that they can get a court date and this is the whole catch and release thing that Republicans are hysterical about, the, the, but the, you know the Bush administration certainly did, you know, every single day. And what we find is that over 95% of these folks, after they have been, you know, essentially uh, arrested is not quite the right word, but they've been taken into custody by the Border Patrol. They have been given a court date where they can come before a judge and make their case for being a refugee. Over 95% of these folks actually show up for their court dates because they want to Where have refugee status in the United from? States. Where from, it, from, from? It's easy to find, Ron. It's easy to find. Well, tell, me what Just, it, you know. tell me what it is. I mean, I've, I've heard the same break by Republicans and Democrats, and so I want to know where is that particular information coming from? Can you tell me right now where it's coming from? Hang where on you just a I'm Googling it, or I'm actually duck-duck-going it as we speak. Okay, here we go. Washington Post. How many migrants show up for their asylum hearings? Bloody, 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 blah. Uh, the nation's 400 immigration judges. Uh, the rate of no-show, they said on CNN, somebody said that, oh, Mike Pence said it was 90% were not showing. And they say the rate of no-shows is far below 90%, according to the Department of Justice. When using the Justice Department's metric, 44% of migrants who are not in custody failed to show up. Okay, I was wrong. It's 66%. Two-thirds of them show up. Um, so, you know, there you go. Washington Post. Ron, thanks a lot for the call. Our book today is The America Syndrome, Apocalypse, War, and Our Call to Greatness by Betsy Hartman. No relation. This is from the introduction, End Times and Endless War. According to opinion polls, a staggering percentage of Americans accept that the world will end in a battle in Armageddon. In a 2010 Pew poll, 41% of respondents said they expect Jesus Christ to return to the earth by 2050. Two years later, a Reuters poll found that over one-fifth of the American population believe the end of the world will happen in their lifetime, as compared to 6% in France, 7% in Belgium, and 8% in Great Britain. Another recent poll by the Public Religion Research Institute reported that 49% of Americans think that natural disasters are a sign of the end times. In the months before the purported December 2, 2012 Mayan apocalypse, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, received so many inquiries from children and adults terrified that a rogue planet might crash into the Earth or that the sun might explode, that it set up a special web page to allay their fears. The page received over four and a half million views. On December 22nd, NASA posted a video it had made in advance why the world didn't end yesterday. Of all the intertwining reasons for our apocalyptic disposition, reasons I explore in this book, the one that stands out most starkly is our acceptance of the necessity and inevitability of war. In the same 2010 Pew study, Six out of ten Americans saw another world war as definite or probable by 2050. This expectation of war isn't surprising given that Americans' apocalyptic images and beliefs are derived mainly from Christianity, especially the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament, which, above all, is about the grotesque violence and crowning glories of war. The book of Revelation is wartime literature. Its author, John, is thought to have been deeply affected by the Roman army's attacks on Judea 
and its siege and sacking of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. John himself was banished to the Greek island of Patmos by Roman rulers around 95. In John's macabre vision of the end times, a fourth of the earth is wiped out, a third of the trees, green grass, and sea creatures are extinguished, and a third of the world's water is poisoned. There are terrible earthquakes, fires, and plagues. Four demons kill a third of all humankind. The whore of Babylon, a symbol of evil and carnal lust, is assaulted by the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, which strips her naked, eats her flesh, and burns her with fire. Toward the end of the book of Revelation, the Savior, with eyes like a flame of fire, faithful and true, rides out on a white horse to lead the armies of heaven in battle. He is, quote, clothed with the vestiture dripping in blood, end quote, and on him are written the words, quote, King of kings and Lord of lords, end quote. He holds a sword in his mouth to smite the nations so that he can preside over them with a rod of iron and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. In the final judgment, the dead are brought back to life, but those judged to be sinners by their deeds are thrown, along with the devil and death itself, into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, where they meet the second death of eternal suffering. Fortunate, then, are those who are judged worthy to live on in the New Jerusalem, a city with streets of gold, gates of pearls, and walls inlaid with gems. There is no need for the sun or moon, since God and the Lamb are the light, and from their throne flows the pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, that nourishes the fruits of the tree of life. This promise of a new Jerusalem for the elect and the cataclysmic violence against people and nature necessary to achieve that goal has made the book of Revelation an ideological tool of conquest and empire from the Crusades onwards. You don't have to be a Christian to be susceptible to John's logic that the perfect end, the new Jerusalem, justifies a bloody means. Despite the official separation of church and state, religious axioms thread through the fabric of American political culture. Historian Robert Bella coined the term civil religion to describe the religious orientation that the great majority of Americans share. That a higher authority guides human affairs, that American history follows a providential path, that Americans are special and exceptional, a chosen people obliged to carry out God's will or else suffer dire consequences are widely held to be self-evident truths. So too is the belief that war is divinely justified. The Civil War marked a watershed in the evolution of our civil religion. As it metastasized into a total war that targeted civilian populations as well as soldiers, estimates of the war deaths have recently been revised upwards to three quarters of a million people. Leaders and clergy on both sides invoked divine authority to justify that slaughter. Quote, many saw in the unprecedented destruction of lives and property something mystical taking place, writes historian Harry Stout, what we might today call the birthing of a fully functional, truly national American civil religion. Patriotism became a sacred duty, as important as adherence to a traditional faith, maybe more so. Civil war deaths created a republic of suffering in which sacrifice and the state became inextricably intertwined. World War I brought about a major reaffirmation of this civil religion. The nation's turn away from isolationism to global intervention was accompanied by hyperbole about its starring role as world redeemer in a continuing war between good and evil around the globe. President Woodrow Wilson complained, the world must be made safe for democracy. The book, The America Syndrome by Betsy Hartman. Christy in Perrysburg, Ohio. Hey, Christy, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. 
Well, I very much am in favor of eliminating the filibuster. But in thinking about how we can improve our democracy, I really think we should think about, and I know it's unrealistic, but I can't help thinking it, is that maybe we need to eliminate the Senate. It's a vestige of the British parliamentary system that has the House of Lords and the House of Commons. And so the Senate would be kind of the House of Lords set up to be special protectors of the monarchy. Of privilege, yeah. uh, and the And the royalty system. And, yeah, and in um, fact, to get into the House of Lords, you have to ha- you have to be you know one of these families. I don't know if it's that if that's the case today, but you know historically, to get into the yes, House of Lords, is. you had to be you had to have a connection to royalty. You know, I, I hear what you're saying, Christy, and to some extent, the Senate has worked like a House of Lords. You know, we had I think it was probably 15 years ago or so. It stopped being the case that the majority of people in the House were not millionaires. But there had not been a non-millionaire in the Senate, and, you know, for a long time. And but I don't know how you'd do that. Plus, you've got you know Montesquieu's argument that I thought was a pretty solid argument, you know, made back in the I believe it was in the 17th century, that you need to split up legislative functions in order to keep power diffused. That you know when power concentrates in any one branch of government particularly the branch that is responsible for making laws, raising taxes, and spending money, then you have the risk of the entire process of making laws being hijacked by a faction. This is what James Madison's Federalist Number 10 was literally all about. And it seems to me like having a Senate is a good thing. I just, you know, I I get it that it's not representative of America the way it's organized right now, and, and that's why we need to add D.C. and Puerto Rico and maybe Guam. But I don't see... Perhaps instead of making it two senators per state, make it two senators per a certain amount of population. So it's more Hmm. truly representative. Interesting. It it ain't going to happen. I can tell you that right off the top, because that would require a constitutional amendment. But it's it's nice to fantasize about it or imagine. I think we need to think about ways we can improve our democracy in, in... Maybe ways we've not explored before. Yeah, regional representation. The filibuster, I think, is number one. Yeah, I agree. And possibly even saying, you know, we are going to move the Senate toward proportional representation. Any state that has five times more citizens than the lowest population state will get an additional senator or maybe even two additional senators if they've got 10 times more citizens or something like that. I mean, yeah seems like there should be a way to do that. But that. again, it would require, yeah, it would require a constitutional amendment, which is just, uh, you know, sadly not going to happen. If, Christy, if, thank you. Uh, thank you. It's an important topic. And I think it's also important for us to remember that, you know, it was back in the 70s that the Republicans decided that all these blue states in the Midwest and the West, and they were largely Democratic, need to flip Republican. And because they're low population states, the media markets are cheap. So we can do this. Well, Democrats should be thinking that way now. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow.
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 